Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the 387th show of ROI, and our guest for today is journalist Tom Philpott, who is going to talk about his book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The show's song is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapsaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're going to be talking about the book Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It, with its author, Tom Philpott. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so let's start out with a little bit of background. Can you kind of give us a, an overview of what farming looks like in America today? Well, sure. Um, I mean, I think it depends a lot on the region. Um, but, you know, we have been for about a half century or probably a little bit more than that, moving in a direction of ever bigger farms, um, ever more specialized farms. Um, we've seen um, a, a pretty uh, steady substitution of uh, labor for capital. So you get more capital intensive farms. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I think the general story sort of pulling back and looking at it from a broad view is of consolidation, um, you know, ever fewer farmers and ever bigger farms. Can you give me a sense? My my grandparents were farmers, um, and you know, for them, a two hundred acre or a three hundred acre farm was fairly normal. What would be the average size of a farm in America today? Again, that really it really does vary by um, by region, but in a place like Iowa. Uh, 200 or 300 acre farm would almost be a small farm, um, a thousand acre farm that I think, you know, a couple of decades ago was considered pretty big, would now really be a mid-sized farm. And, um, and you know, I think the sort of um, a, a mean size farm would be around two to 3,000 acres. Okay. Uh, a question, Tom. I grew up on a farm. Uh, my father owns... 240 acres. Uh, my brothers and I were raised where we had a thousand hogs and uh, we got rid of the milk cows. We got rid of the chickens. Uh, then we, when the hogs left, we got about 200 cattle. And my father says you really even can't even call them farms now because they're either all through domesticated agriculture, or as you said, they deal completely with livestock. Uh, do you agree with what my dad says? Because our traditional definition of a farm is not what it is today. I think your father was right. I mean, I think that, you know, you've seen in the Corn Belt, you've seen this move from pretty diversified operations where, you know, essentially every farm in Iowa 50 years ago had hogs. A lot of farms, you know, some large percentage of farms also had chickens. And that's just not true anymore. The, the number of hogs at the farms has declined dramatically. But as you guys know, hogs didn't leave the state. They, um, hog populations exploded. And so you've got fewer and fewer and more and more specialized operations doing hogs in, you know, 
houses that that hold 2,500 or so um, um, pigs in each one. Um, and so, yeah, um, I think your father has was actually onto something. Well, well, then a question we're talking about, like with the issue of confinement lots for fowl or for hogs. Uh, do you see they are becoming more and more in what I see, and then of course our our uh, fellow kitchen uh, talker Ed will probably say in a little bit later. They are becoming more of a more a struggle for communities because uh, as you produce more and more of them, the uh, aftermath of having five thousand hogs in a confinement area, uh, communities are trying to figure out what do you do with the smell and the aftermath. Do you see that as a continuous trade across our nation? I do. Um, I, I think that we're going to see more and more in places like Iowa and also places like where I am in North Carolina, communities pushing back and saying, um, you know, we don't want this giant hog operation to move into our community. And, you know, that's been these battles have been happening for a while, both in Iowa and North Carolina and other places. And I think they're they're just going to intensify. And I think there is a definite problem of of community erosion because, you know, a small town that has um, a large farming community around of diversified farmers, there's a, a feed and seed shop, there's a general store, there's a cafe where people go to have breakfast. And um, and as we've we've gotten this consolidation of farming and all these farms going out of business and fewer and fewer farms, all of those um, services in small towns become less profitable. And so you see those going out of business, too, and you, you see small towns dying. And I think that is one of the costs of industrial agriculture that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Um, Tom, I would like to kind of switch the focus away from Iowa because that's what we're all very comfortable with here and in the kind of farming that we do, which is often seed corn and things like that. Um, and, and look at a place like California where you have a, a larger percentage of fruits and vegetables and things like that being produced. Are they having the same kinds of issues with um, increasing farm size and sort of the monopolizing of, of agriculture uh, in those areas that we're seeing here in the Midwest? Absolutely. Um, the, I would say the, the one difference in, in the Central Valley, which I talk about in the book, um, have a big section on the Central Valley in the book, farms have always been pretty large um you know the the original sort of american settlers who took over the land in those areas and they're you know they're obviously exceptions but it it has always been since the 19th century um fairly large landowners and so that but you know having said that the same forces that we're talking about are working there so you are seeing consolidation of farms and, you know, something else you see there um, in, in California is this kind of explosion of small farms as well. Um, not so much in the Central Valley, but places like around the Bay Area. Um, and that is a, a real thing, but it's also really constrained by land prices. Land prices around those, those sort of Bay Area or Los Angeles are so expensive that it really puts downward pressure on this, you know, people's desire to farm in you know, create fruits and vegetables for local markets is constrained by land prices. But that is happening. So there's two things happening at once, hyper-consolidation and then 
you know, small farms uh, trying to make it. Okay. Um, to take it from a different perspective, uh, and I'll use example here in Iowa, but again, I'm asking you if this is a trend in the last 50 years. There are areas where we're at in eastern Iowa that you'll have sites on the map that have no municipality whatsoever. All they are is an agricultural industry center point, usually massive elevators or grains, that they'll come into this community, they will build them, uh, and I'm not saying they pay taxes and all that, and I'm not saying they're vandals, but the big question that I have with this is, is that you have these set-aside agricultural industrial places they give them a name so that the truckers can know where to drop or pick up supplies. But it kind of, in my opinion, from what I see, kind of has a disrupt, uh, it, it, is, it causes a uh, disruption in the community because, as you were saying, the smaller parts of a community uh, that are much more local within 15 years are all gone. Are you seeing that in North Carolina? Because we definitely have that here in eastern Iowa. Absolutely seeing it in North Carolina in the eastern part of the of the state. Um, you know, once again in you know in that area there were a lot of small diversified farms or you know, small by today's standards, diversified farms and towns that were that existed to serve them. And um lots and lots of those towns are going into depression. In the western part of the state, um, where there was burly tobacco production you are, uh, which is also where the mountains are. You're you're seeing yeah. that, and you're, you're basically seeing tourism take over the over for farming, and so you're seeing a, a pretty significant loss of uh, farmland, and economy switching over to being geared toward serving local people to serving tourists from places like Florida. Sure. Um, Tom, this will have to be the last question for our segment, uh, for our opening segment here. Um, Another one of the problems that you point out in your book is that um, sort of the the monoculture of of the way industrial agriculture works is that we're getting fewer and fewer uh, varieties of grains being planted, um, fewer and fewer varieties of livestock being raised. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and why that's a dangerous trend? Well, I mean, I think that biodiversity has always been really crucial to agriculture. And so if you if you have um, a seed stock that is, you know, really owned by a couple of companies, like, you know, something like corn and, and soybean seeds, where, it, you know, the, the dominant players are a couple of companies and they're breeding them for very specific reasons for sort of, uh, you know, essentially maximizing yield. You get this narrowing of uh, diversity. And if a disease comes through that, that, that those varieties are susceptible, there's no biodiversity to act as a firewall. And so you can get real disasters. And I think that's an even bigger deal in something like hogs uh, because there are pathogens that attack hogs um, and that can be really devastating. Like they, there's a thing called the African swine fever that is uh, wreaking havoc in China and other parts of the world. And you want biodiversity when something like that, like that happens because you've got a diverse stock. Some of those pigs are going to survive and you can breed those pigs 
that will have um, resistance in their in their genes and and sort of survive it. But if you've got a really narrow genetic base, then you're just going to lose all your hogs. And so it's a way more fragile kind of system. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is journalist Tom Pilpot, and we're talking about his book, Perilous Bounty, the looming collapse of American farming and how we can prevent it. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Ed, as a former small family farmer, you get the first question. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, Tom, when I um, I'm, don't have the specific uh, statistics like you do, but I'm aware of all these things. Um, and when I think about this stuff, part of me looks at this and just says, this is isn't this just another aspect of a throwaway consumptive culture can can you comment on that yeah i mean i think that we have to think about that as one way to interpret this because if you look at our diet if you look at the diet I have a huge section in the book asking the question what is a diet that is generated from this corn and soybean duopoly in the Midwest. And it turns out to be, you know, basically just what you said. It's a a great system for generating lots and lots of cheap ingredients, um, you know, fats, like, uh, you know, basically soybean oil, corn oil, sweeteners like high fructose corn syrup and other corn sugars. Um, and just those two elements and then all the other ingredients you can get from corn and soybeans basically make up the huge majority of the sort of fast food American diet. The, the other, um, you know, aspect of it being, of course, very, very cheap feedlot meat. So, you know, if you've got really, really cheap corn and you can find cows into massive uh, polluting feedlots, and, you know, you don't have to pay, the companies don't have to pay the expenses of, uh, of, the, of that, then you can, ha- you can have really cheap meat. And then if you have really cheap meat, you can have, uh, you know, dollar McDonald's burger with a corn and soybean fed little patty on it with bun, with a bun sweetened by high fruit fructose corn syrup, and potatoes fried in soybean oil. And McDonald's can still make a profit off that. So I, I think our diet has become you know, a very good example of throwaway consumer culture. 
And so part of the problem here also is that in a capitalistic society um, where we have an accounting problem in that there is no cost assessed for all these resources that are being either consumed or destroyed. Because the stuff, the stuff is all artificially cheap. That's right. Okay. Uh, Terry. Um, yes. Um, I talked with my friend Heather, uh, who's a local farmer, and I asked her, you know, what her view was of farming today. And she has about a thousand um, acre farm. They have hogs and so on. And she said, well, from her view, farmers anticipate ups and downs. And that today, though, in her area, most of the farmers are in their 60s and they remember the farm crisis of the 80s. And of course, then we had the derecho come through, which was extremely hard, you know, for Iowa farmers because they expected a bumper crop this year. Uh, so it was not only financially, but emotionally hard. Um, so can you talk a little bit about crop insurance? Because she said that most uh, farmers do have crop insurance, but it's kind of like health insurance. It depends on what disaster it covers. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I would say about crop insurance is that the system that we have embedded in the farm bill that comes out every five years is that farmers in the Midwest are offered subsidized crop insurance against um, not just disasters like the derecho storm, but also against low prices. And the problem, you know, you just said that they were expecting a bumper crop. Well, the, the problem with that is that when there's a bumper crop in the corn belt, then there's lots and lots of corn and soybeans and that, that drives the price down. And that typically kicks in these, um, the, the policies I was just talking about, the revenue insurance policies. So prices drop and then the revenue insurance policy kicks in. Um, there is also crop insurance for disasters like the derecho and I understand that um, even with those policies in place, President um, President Trump brought in disaster relief into the area, and so you know I just think that um, there's all these different insurance schemes, and you know I, I don't mean scheme in a in a bad way, but insurance mechanisms to keep farmers growing corn and soybeans, and I think we need to tweak policy to a more robust system where, you know, a bumper crop doesn't mean bad things for, uh, for farmers. Because right now, a bumper crop in the Midwest, all that means is prices are going to go down. And if you get a bumper crop in Brazil the same year, which are in direct competition with um, Midwest farmers, then you've got a real um, price problem on your hands. And that just means more subsidized insurance. So that's kind of what the conversation I would have with your friend, I think. Okay. Uh, I got a question with, uh, and probably Ed, feel free to jump on on this for our listeners. Being that you brought up um, the issue of President Trump when he had his major tariff wars and China pretty much lashed out on the, the buying of soybeans and uh, pork. And um, I really don't think Americans understand the uh, ramification of these actions for number one, they, they weren't thought out. 
It wasn't like any studies were done. Uh, President Trump did this as a, a counter to China's um, pro, uh, trading uh, regulations on American products. But could you tell our listeners that this is going to have ramifications down the road? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the the gamble that Trump was taking was that um, that he you know he was he started this kind of uh, amorphous trade war. It wasn't really clear what he wanted. Something about intellectual property rights, right? And there are some legitimate issues there, but so he slaps all these tariffs on um, onto, onto Chinese goods, Chinese retaliation, particular. And, you know, we don't send much in a way of anything else to China besides pork and soybeans. I mean, it's a, it's a large percentage of what we send China. You know, they send us iPhones, we send them soybeans and pork. And, um, and so when they hit back, it really hit at Trump's base um, because, you know, he's got a strong base in the Corn Belt. The, the tariffs also hit stuff like almonds coming from California and the Central Valley of California where they grow the almonds is also a very uh, strong Trump area. And so China was able to directly hit back at his base. And Trump's response um, was basically to, to parachute money into these areas, especially soybeans and cotton. Uh, and so, you know, several times in the second half of his, of his administration, he sends billions and billions of dollars in tariff payments. And, um, you know, I don't think farmers may not particularly well from that because, you know, they didn't always offset um, offset the losses. But it um, it made this really interesting situation where when he comes in with his uh, his uh, bailout funds, it paradoxically turns him back into the hero he had been the villain who you know messed up this great trade relationship with china but now all, all of a sudden he's the hero for coming in with his cash and, and so I, I just think it's just a very silly system to to base your entire agriculture on sowing selling soybeans to china and being at the whim of these of these trade wars and and if I could follow up a little bit, I, I, I agree with Tom. And the other, what I also see is that, um, you know, living and dying with the export market in the long run is probably more dying than living. But it shows to me, it illustrates to me the folly of having one customer be so much uh, of your only market, your only outlet for your product. Uh, and it should give somebody pause that, you know, maybe – we shouldn't become so dependent on China, where the tail is wagging. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was just going to. I was just going to say absolutely. And uh, the the truth is that that Brazil is a massive producer of soybeans. Yeah. And they could become a massive producer of pork if they wanted to. They already are a pretty big big one, and they were able to benefit from the, those trade wars by ramping up their sales to China. So you got a big competitor waiting in the wings. Well, and, and we're very familiar in Iowa with the en environmental cost of that system, of that not just the feedstuff, but the pork production, those industrialized systems. And I don't think there's any reason to think that the same problems in the long run aren't going to happen in Brazil. Absolutely. And it, it already is happening. And, and Tom, I want to kind of follow that up. 
um, in your book, you talk about some of those those um, ecological costs, and and I particularly want to to talk about sort of differences between reality and perception. Um, being here in in, in the Midwest. Uh, in the last 20 years, we have seen all sorts of advertisements about ways in which um, agriculture in general is working to eliminate the agricultural costs, stop runoff, um, eliminate soil erosion, um, you know, and all of these different kinds of things have come along that, that you know, we're not, uh, we're not plowing in the fall or we're not doing this or that. And yet when I look at the the kind of ecological results at the back end, which is, you know, algae blooms in the Gulf of Mexico and toxicity levels in, in silt and so forth and so on. It seems to me like a lot of the conversation about what's being done ecologically doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of weight behind it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that kind of, and, and maybe where that, that difference between reality and perception is coming from? Sure. So the, you know, the Farm Bureau will say, the Iowa Farm Bureau, a very powerful organization, will say, um, you know, hey, um, farmers are risk averse. If you want them to take up practices that will make for better water, you've got to pay them. I mean, you can't regulate. You know, regulation is terrible. We hate regulation. But, you know, take away the stick and give us the carrot. So pay us to plant cover crops. And, you know, pay us to do practices that on the margin might help with some of this water pollution you just mentioned. And so what happens is you get the, you get these payments, both in the state level and the federal level, and you get these really nice-looking growth numbers. Like, you know, a Farm Bureau person will tell you cover crops in Iowa are growing at about 20% year-over-year. Everything's fine. And, you know, so we're supposed to, you know, okay, well, they've got to sort it out. But as you said, the, the water quality um, measures from local uh, rivers and lakes all the way down the Gulf of Mexico tell us that it's not working. And, um, and so what it is is it's just really clever marketing. So if you have a half percent of Iowa acres in cover crops, and um, putting significant money behind it causes 20% year on your growth, then um, it's going to take you, you know, I'm not going to do the math right now, but it's going to take you about a century or something to get the, you know, a, a significant amount of the state in cover crops. And so it's really just playing with numbers. And I think a, a better way to do it would be to say, look, um, we require, uh, you know, essentially water with nitrate levels under a certain level or phosphorus levels under a certain level leaving your farm. We don't care how you get there, but that's the requirement. And if you come to us and say, well, I'm, you know, I need money to do cover crops, then maybe we'll give you a grant. But there's, there, there ends up, I think there has to be some kind of stick. There's got to be some kind of regulation or it's just not going to change. Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Tom, why do you think knowing about the current state of American agriculture is relevant in today's world? I think it's relevant because we have grown accustomed to a very cheap and bountiful food supply. And as I show in the book, the two areas 
that are most responsible for that are the Central Valley of California and the Corn Belt, um, where Iowa is right in the middle of it. And both of these regions are in a state of low and long ecological unraveling. And climate change is speeding that up, and it's becoming faster. And, you know, it used to be slow, and it's accelerating into a pretty fast clip. And we can get to the point, if we keep as we are and just sort of not paying attention to it and, you know, sidling up to McDonald's and, you know, going to the supermarket and, and buying all this cheap stuff without thinking about where it's coming from and how it's being made, we could find really fast that suddenly it's gone. That catastrophes that I lay out of my book in California and Iowa and the rest of the Corn Belt could take those things away really fast. And I think it would be smart to start thinking of alternatives and start changing things to slow down the degradation. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI and KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 387th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, journalist Tom Philpott, who talked with us about his book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. The history buffs for today's show we're Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The, the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Oso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.